Welcome in to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. The World Series is set. Rangers versus Diamondbacks, two teams that were popular surprise picks before the season, but uh, I don't think anyone foresaw them meeting up in the World Series. Two wildcard teams, two teams who went in on the road and knocked off the defending World Series champion and defending National League champion, respectively. Uh, In a lot of ways, it's been a Cinderella run, and now we're going to get a World Series matchup that, while unexpected, certainly should be exciting the way these two teams have played throughout the postseason. We are here to break it all down at Baseball America. To do that, I am joined by my friend and colleague, Jeff Ponce. Jeff, Rangers D-backs. Again, something it's fair to say, I don't want to say no one saw coming, few saw coming. At the same time, both teams have shown they deserve to be here with the way they've played this postseason. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at the season through a variety of snippets, there were points and periods in time where both of these teams were the best teams in their respective division and among the top three performing teams in their respective leagues. So, you know, I think if we look at the totality of everything and how there's a lot of peaks and valleys throughout the baseball season – both of these teams at points in time, particularly in the first half, were first-place teams. Absolutely. The Rangers had a stranglehold on the division down to the final days and, and weren't able to hold on to it. And the Diamondbacks were in first place pretty much through mid-June. And even though things fell apart a little bit late in the year, uh, they did finish strong toward the end. So, mm-hmm. again, these are two talented teams who have shown they can sustain a high clip of winning for extended periods of time, even though they weren't quite able to hold on over the course of the long major league season. And I think before we dive into breaking down the matchup, something that needs to be addressed is yes, you look at this and see an 84 win team and a 90 win team. And obviously it's not the matchup anyone would have thought or predicted at the same time, classifying the postseason as a crapshoot. We've talked about this. I just don't think that's right because a crapshoot indicates no one controls anything. It's completely random and things just happen. These two teams went out and won these games. They outplayed very, very, very difficult opponents. There's nothing random about that. You know, you can say from a statistical standpoint, you know, percentage-wise that certain outcomes are random, but I think describing it as a crapshoot takes away from what these two teams accomplished. You don't go into Philadelphia and win back-to-back games with your backs against the wall by chance. You have to go out and take it. The Diamondbacks did that. If you're the Rangers, you don't go back to Houston, home of the defending champions, down three games to two, backs against the wall, and come out and perform the way they did just randomly. It doesn't just happen. They made it happen. The players made it happen. So I think it's important to give credit to these two teams, these two managers, these two front offices for – basically just doing what it takes to win. And I think just describing it as a crapshoot takes away from what these teams have done. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I think you know that I feel that way and I've, I've said as much. And even if we, we break it down to a statistical um, sort of approach, the amount of games that you would have to play to sort of eliminate randomness in baseball is a tremendous amount, even in comparison to other sports. Like you're talking, I think it was like 130 games. Somebody had put out the probabilities or whatever. 
that's not possible. Like, obviously, you know, and, and, and if that's a case for not having playoffs, then, I, you know, I don't think that's very good for the brand or the health of baseball because the games that people are most interested into tuning into are these playoff games. Now, that being said, one thing that I wanted to sort of talk about a little bit, too, uh, was how these teams played and breaking that down a little bit. The narrative around the Diamondbacks being an 84-win team and the run differential, I don't think necessarily fully puts all of the context into their season. So I pulled the numbers, Kyle. They were 49-34 and through the end of June. They were in first place uh, in the West. They lost 17 out of 20 games between July 20th and August 11th. Then from August 12th until game one of the wildcard series, they went 27 and 19. That losing stretch over that 20 games where they lost 17 of that 20, there's a particular uh, um, incident that happened uh, at that period in time, something that would have impacted this lineup tremendously and sort of the engine of that Diamondbacks team. That was an injury to Corbin Carroll. Corbin Carroll struggled, was hurt, returned, and then sort of, excuse me, got hurt. Um, it was sort of an MVP candidate before that point. Then, you know, gets injured, returns, struggles for a little bit. I think he had a, a, a sub 800 OPS over like a 30 game stretch there and then really kicks it into high gear late in the season. Okay. So we can go to three different instances, the beginning of the season, that, you know, initial run over the first half, that run in the late part of the season, and then this run in the playoffs. Corbin Carroll has been a top 10 player in baseball over those periods in time and has been a, had the ability to carry the team. I think we also see that this is a young team with a lot of co- good young core players who are very important to how this team works. Gabriel Moreno being one, Alec Thomas being another that really had to sort of learn on the job with their first full-time experience. Alec Thomas had some ups and downs, was demoted and then promoted. But those guys were valuable players and big-time players in big-time moments. And I think, you know, it goes back to something that you you often hear scouts say versus sort of the analytical mindset. And I think it's it rings true here. It's hard to find winning ball players, but I think that Corbin Carroll is like the perfect crystal clear example of a winning ball player. And I know it's not something you can necessarily measure and, and we struggle to sort of value stuff that we can't measure nowadays just because we can measure so many things. Um, but I don't think it should be easily dismissed. And I think if, you know, you look at the numbers, you look at the story of the diamondback season, they just had a really bad stretch over 20 games. And perhaps they figured some things out over that period of time. It was also around the trade deadline. Yeah. And I, I had actually written about that and my piece about Corbin Carroll uh, leading into the NLCS about how you can track the Diamondback success through his arc of the season. And, and as you mentioned, he had that swing where it appeared he aggravated his surgically repaired shoulder was not right for a stretch there, but, but in mid August, he finally got right. Tori Lovello talked about, he made some adjustments to how pitchers were pitching him and he took off and, and really ran away with the NL rookie of the year award. He was probably going to get it anyway, but um, especially the way he finished the year, helped propel the D backs back into wildcard contention. And when he's right, he makes this team go. And we saw him come up huge in game seven. Uh, had a couple of hits, a couple of stolen bases. Um, you know, he had struggled a little bit during the NLCS. And, and in some ways, it was, I think, a testament to the depth of the D-backs and the ability to have other players step up. That They were able to remain competitive while he was struggling. And then when it came time to go out and take it, he came up big. Um, he's a sensational player. He's a true 
you know, leader in the clubhouse in the sense he's a soft-spoken guy. It's not like he's a big rah-rah guy, but he makes everything go. And you can't help but just feel the energy and the excitement when you're in the dugout with him watching him play. And, and the D-backs players have talked about that. So as long as Corbin Carroll is going well, the D-backs can beat everyone and anyone. And I do think, too, it, it is worth mentioning that even when he wasn't going well, there are good players on this team. Patel Marte has been one of the more underrated players in baseball for years. You know, Christian Walker doesn't get talked about enough. What a steal of an acquisition he was. Older guy, put up huge numbers at AAA Reno. You say, ah, I don't know if this is real. And he's come out and become a really good first baseman. The addition of Lourdes Gurriel on top of Gabriel Moreno has been a really, really good acquisition as well. This is a good team with good players. I wrote about a little bit today. They've done a great job in the draft. You look at their drafts, really 2017 through 2021, you have players from every one of those drafts on this roster, including more than a few playing major roles. They've done a good job with trades. It's no secret the D-backs operate with a more limited budget, but they've done some really good things within the, those constraints. You look at signing Merrill Kelly out of Korea and then bringing him back on really a, a still a pretty discounted deal making trades for guys like Tommy Pham when they needed a right-handed hitting outfielder, they got it. Trading for Paul Seawald, they realized they do need a bona fide closer at the end of games and went out and did it. Um, This is a talented team. And look, they swept the Brewers on the road coming back against Corbin Burns and Freddie Peralta. They went out and manhandled the Dodgers in a sweep. They became the first team to go into Philadelphia and win in Citizens Bank Park this postseason. And only did it once. They did it twice, back-to-back nights to get themselves into the World Series. At this point, yeah, you have to say they're capable of beating anyone. They went 9-3. and three. They've knocked off the Brewers, Dodgers, and Phillies. They've shown they can hit the home run. We all know they can run and put pressure on defenses. And they've done it without really even uh, a fourth starter. I mean, you've had Zach Gallant not pitching well, frankly. Merrill Kelly's been fine. Brandon Fott's been really good. And they've been having to use a bullpen game. I mean, they have some limitations, and they're winning despite them. I think it's just really, really impressive the team they've built, the way they're playing, and what they've accomplished this postseason. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I wanted to go back to just one thing before maybe we move on to another topic here with Corbin Carroll. Uh, You know, we went three for four last night, obviously huge moments. But um, I think my favorite at bat of the night, I, I, I think it was in the seventh inning. I have to double check on this. It's facing Jose Alvarado. Alvarado throws 100 miles an hour, first pitch, swings through it. Second pitch, foul tip. Third pitch, gets on a little bit more, right? Three straight pitches at 100 miles an hour, give or take, you know, decimal points. Fouls that off. He's a little bit more on it. Fourth time, Alvarado comes back with that fastball. Carroll hits it to right center field for, you know, pretty deep um, for a sacrifice fly that I think at that point put him up four to two. Um, so it's just like big moments like that for me with Carol, like you notice things like that where it's not all star ball all the time. And, you know, he has the ability to adjust like immediately on things. And there's just these like very smart little plays that he makes, um, that are just so impressive. He's, he's one of my favorite players to watch, you know? Um, and I, it was funny that, you know, a, a three for four night, but I think my favorite, my favorite at bat of the night was, you know, him facing off and getting sacrificed fly and driving in a big run, you know. Absolutely. And also the fact he did it against a lefty. Early in the year, I remember covering the D-backs Dodgers opening day game and Corbin Carroll was down the lineup and Tori Lovello talked about, you know, they want to kind of ease the landing a little bit, you know, against lefties, he's probably going to bat lower in the order. 
And as Zach Buchanan wrote for us in the story where we named Corbin Carroll to be a rookie of the year after the regular season, he kind of took the challenge of getting better against lefties personally. He wanted to be a guy who was every bit as dangerous against them as he is against right-handed hitters. And he made such tremendous strides in progress. Corbin Carroll at the beginning of the season probably doesn't have an at-bat like that. He might strike out in that spot. And nothing against Corbin Carroll. It's just that was a weakness of his game. Every player has them, things they have to work on. And he made tremendous strides over the course of the season to put himself in position to have an at-bat like that in a big spot against one of the hardest-throwing left-handed relievers in the game. And, and again, just speaks to that ability to get better, to continue working, and, and not rest on his laurels because he was already the number two prospect in baseball coming into the year. He already had his $100 million contract before opening day. Um, but he never stopped working, got better, and, and it paid off in a big way in a big spot for his team when they needed it most. Jeff, moving over to the Rangers, the series against the Astros, we talked about it, was full of drama, full of tension, in-state rivalry with a lot of emotions. And the Rangers emerged victorious again, winning the first two games in Houston, dropping all three back at home, including an absolute backbreaker in game five, coming back, winning games six and seven. And you talk about not being able to measure certain things. I've talked about this on the podcast a little bit, but it bears repeating. And Bruce Bochy mentioned it in the post-game press conference. The resilience of this team just keeps showing up again and again and again. And there's tremendous amounts of talent. Don't get me wrong. It's not like this is a gritty, gutty team that's just finding a way. This is an absolutely stacked team with talent. But there are plenty of talented teams that don't have that resilience, that don't have that edge. The Padres are one of them. The Mets are one of them. The Rangers have it. The way they blew the division to end the season was just absolutely a gut punch. And they didn't let it affect them. They came right back out, swept the 99-win Rays, swept the 101-win Orioles, and went into Houston down 3-2 and took down the defending champions, especially out of a back-breaking game five. I think the Rangers certainly have something special going where you have tremendous talent with tremendous resilience. That's a really, really special combination and one that can really allow teams to do some special things. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, uh, I, I agree, you know, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, I do think there are times, uh, especially in, in media these days, baseball media, where we do dismiss things that perhaps we can't measure, um, or, you know, or things that we just never experienced ourselves. Right. You know, I've, I've never played for a world series champion. I only <laughs> somebody who has, so, you know, that's just one of those things. <laughs> And that's where it's important to listen to the players and the coaches who are living it in real time. A lot of times you see players and coaches tell you what's happening. And then you see some people who are not there say, oh, it's just people who like to tell themselves stories or fall into cliches. Listen to the people on the ground. Listen to what they're telling you. Always trust that over your own preconceived notions. It's really, really important. And, and the Rangers have talked about it openly. And we've seen it too. I, I wrote an article today about just how far these two teams have come. Two years ago, the Diamondbacks were 52 and 110, had the worst ERA of any team in the National League. It was over five, and had only one player hit more than 15 home runs in a season. That was Eduardo Escobar, by the way, who's no longer with the team. The Rangers lost 102 games, had the lowest OPS of any team in Major League Baseball, and had only one starter with an ERA under four and a half. 
we look up today, the Rangers have gone from the worst OPS in baseball two years ago and then 102 loss season to the highest scoring offense in the American League. The Diamondbacks have gone from a team that really didn't do much of anything well to a team that's exciting and can beat you in a lot of different ways. And to turn it thing, turn it around that quickly, and, and they did it differently. You can read the article and as I kind of like how they each did it and the different paths they took. Look, it takes making all the right moves. The Rangers, it was huge free agent signings, a couple of under-the-radar acquisitions, and some good drafts, which this organization had not had for the better part of a decade. For the D-backs, it was more a string of excellent drafts, some good small moves around the margins, and and some trades. They didn't spend a ton of money because they don't have it. But there's an organizational resilience there. To go from losing 100-plus games and being among the worst teams in baseball to turn it around this quickly – um, it really speaks, I think, to the culture as well as just some of the forwards that these players have. Adolis Garcia talked about it. It was tough. The Rangers lost 200-plus games in a two-year span. He and Nate Lowe are, two, are the only two stars remaining from those teams. I mean, they stuck with it. They kept performing. They kept getting better. And now they're reaping the rewards. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it goes to show, um, you know, especially with the Diamondbacks, there's been – some continuity within that program. And I think sort of trying to see out this vision. Um, and I don't know if a lot of, a lot of teams would have necessarily stuck with that, especially in, in bigger markets. And they've allowed some of that stuff to mature. Um, while they're not a huge spending team, I wouldn't say that the Diamondbacks, I wouldn't describe them as scared to spend um, or even take on some costs. They certainly did with Madison Bumgarner. Um, and then, you know, we look at, uh, we look at the Rangers and, and what they've built. And I know we've talked about this behind the scenes and some discussions for different content that we have forthcoming uh, shortly, but they're an organization that's done a really good job of, I think, doing all the little things where focusing on, you know, the scouting department, they do have a solid scouting department. You know, they've invested in analytics. They've invested in players and coaches at the major league level. Uh, they've invested in players and coaches, you know, throughout the organization, uh, trying to you know invest in technology and do some things differently. And I think over the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of development success stories come out of the Rangers, not just the stuff that we've seen at the major league level. But we're starting, to, but I guess to a degree, we've, we have started to see sort of that first wave of players and talent come through. Um, and the approach has been good. And I think as we talked about at the trade deadline, um, you know, I think I called them out as uh, having the best trade deadline of any team in MLB. And uh, I think you can kind of point to some of that now. Um, and, you know, they've just been an organization that's been aggressive in going out and getting good players, regardless of sort of what the funnel is, whether it's the draft, uh, they've done some different things there, taken some chances, or in free agency, they haven't been scared to spend. Um, I think it kind of goes without saying, but we kind of forget Jacob deGrom is on this team. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I highlighted today again, I encourage everyone to go on BaseballAmerica.com and read the story. I mean, the sheer amount of money they spent, um, it's it's jaw-dropping. Really, from the day they spent $556 million on one day to sign Marcus Simeon, Corey Seager, and John Gray, uh, December 1st, 2021, adding on hundreds of millions on top of that. So they certainly have not been afraid to spend. And look, spending doesn't automatically make you a contender, but generally speaking, if you spend wisely you're more likely to have the pieces needed to make a deep run and, and survive the 162-game season plus an increasingly long postseason now. 
All right, Jeff. So we've talked about the Diamondbacks, the Rangers, how they got here. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to dive into what to look forward to as the World Series gets underway. Some keys for both teams and ultimately make our predictions about who's going to walk away champions of the 2023 season. Stick around. We'll be right back after the break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the World Series Preview Podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside Jeff Ponce here at Baseball America. All right, Jeff. So before the break, we talked about the Diamondbacks, the Rangers, how they got here, what they did to get here, all the factors that have been at play. Now let's break down the matchup. Again, I know there are some people out there who are unenthused just because it's not teams from Southern California or major Midwest markets or the Bay area or the Northeast. But um, I think this is going to be a very, very exciting series, a lot of talent on the field. And and it does need to be said, Phoenix and Dallas are two of the largest Metro areas in the U S so there will be plenty of people watching. As you break down this matchup, what are some of the key things you're looking at and what are some of the X factors you think will make a difference in this series that may or may not necessarily be the obvious types of choices? Yeah, sure. Um, When I think about, um, you know, the Diamondbacks, um, I think the biggest question that I have when, you know, sort of going against uh, the Rangers is just, how does how does the bullpen shape up? How tired are they at this point? Um, they were leaned on pretty heavily, you know, in the last series. Um, in terms of that lack of starter depth, I think that's a big question mark. Um, on the other side, you know, I'm interested to see uh, just sort of how the Rangers handle um, a team like this. Uh, they run a lot. Um, they're sort of a different type of team that I think that they've they've faced so far. Um, not necessarily as as veteran savvy, uh, <clears throat> certainly as the Astros. Um, so just you know, I have to dig in more on the X's and O's, frankly. Uh, but I don't know. I think I think from the, the 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 pitching matchups to me are probably the most interesting, and and especially after sort of the top two guys in each of these rotations and how that 
ends up shaking out. Yeah, I'm going to have a full breakdown of, of three keys for both teams coming out on baseballamerica.com, uh, either Thursday or Friday, where we'll fully break everything down. But um, there are a couple key points here that I'm going to be watching for. Uh, for the Rangers, the, the biggest thing is finding the length from their starting pitching once you get past your top two. You feel pretty good about Jordan Montgomery and Nate Yavaldi being able to give you six to seven. And, and we see with the Rangers – Josh Spores has been fantastic this postseason. You feel pretty good about handing the ball off to him in the seventh or the eighth, typically the seventh. Jose Leclerc had that meltdown in game five, but other than that has been pretty nails, not just this postseason, but toward the end of the regular season as well. You feel okay giving the ball to Spores and Leclerc. It's getting to them that's the issue. And when Nate Uvalde and Jordan Montgomery on the mound, you feel pretty good. Those guys will give you six, maybe pitch into the seventh. And you maybe only have to find one guy to kind of bridge that gap and you can match it up and make it work. Max Scherzer has not been able to go deep since he came back from his injury in the ALCS. He pitched four innings in game three, his first start back after missing five weeks. It was not sharp. And in game seven, uh, he didn't make it through the third inning. And given how much this Rangers bullpen has been used and how limited the reliable options are, they're going to need more length. So seeing if they can get more from Scherzer is going to be one key. And the second part of that is finding a fourth starter you feel good about. Um, you know, Andrew Heaney got the start in game four and Andrew Heaney is just very, very limited in his ability. Um, he, he pitched okay this year, but he can't really give you length, and he is very, very prone to leaving a lot of very hittable pitches over the plate. I would like to see the Rangers give Dane Dunning a little more of a chance. Dane Dunning led the team in innings this year. Like Dane Dunning was a pretty solid pitcher. He had a sub-4 ERA. He was durable. The walk rate was fine. The strikeouts were fine. It wasn't great, but... He was very good this year, and they've been using him in more of a piggyback role. The, the plan was let Heaney go and then give the give it to Dunning. I would like to see them just let Dane Dunning take the start in game four and give them the length he gave them all year. I think that would benefit the team tremendously, give this bullpen some much-needed rest. I'd rather see him start the game, and then you can use Andrew Heaney in a more limited relief role where you can just have him go one inning instead of asking for three or four from him, which can be too much of an ask at times with his ability level. So I, I think that's going to be the big key for me, what the Rangers can get in games three and four from their starters lengthwise, Max Scherzer. And then, I mean, really, you know, John Gray, he's only come out in relief since he came back from his injury in the ALCS. We don't know what he's capable of health-wise, but just from a talent standpoint, Dane Dunning and John Gray are better than Andrew Heaney, and I would just like to see the Rangers – possibly get more from those guys and use one of them as their starter in game four. And then from the Diamondbacks perspective, I think the main thing is really going to be pushing the pace. This is a team that we saw finish second in the majors and stolen bases this year. And early in the NLCS against the Phillies, they kind of got away from that. They only stole one base in their first five games against the Phillies in the NLCS. And then not coincidentally, they started pushing the pace. They had more success after stealing only one base in their first five games of the NLCS and falling behind 3-2. 
they stole eight bases in the final two games, four stolen bases each game, won both games. When the Diamondbacks are pushing the tempo, pushing the pace, you know, stealing bases, that's when they're at their best. Now, the Rangers are very good at controlling the run game. Uh, they allowed the fifth fewest stolen bases in the majors this year. They caught 25% of runners, the fifth highest mark in the majors. Most of their pitchers are pretty good at holding runners. Uh, their catchers, both John Heim and Mitch Garver, are very good at, at throwing. So this is going to be a battle of strength here. The D-backs being a great team in terms of stealing bases. The Rangers doing a great job controlling the run game. But if you're the D-backs, you have to take the initiative. You have to push the pace. So those are the two keys for me. The Rangers getting length from their starters in games three and four to mitigate how much their bullpen's being exposed. And for the D-backs playing more like they did in games six and seven of the NLCS rather than games one through five and really pushing the pace and taking it to the Rangers. Yeah. And uh, like I had mentioned earlier, you know, I thought that uh, the speed of the Diamondbacks is certainly something that's uh, an interesting component of this. And I, I didn't know the, uh, the uh, catch and throw numbers for the Rangers. So that is a, uh, an interesting battle to watch for sure. Yeah, just two other things that I think are, are worth noting because there are always guys in the postseason who step up and and maybe are not household names. Um, you know, we talk about the bullpens. Kevin Ginkle and Paul Seawald at the back of the bullpen for the Diamondbacks have been exceptional. They've combined for 17 scoreless innings this postseason. They've allowed nine hits combined, three walks, 24 strikeouts. And so for the D-backs, you know, we've talked about again, a couple things need to happen. Zach Gallon has an ERA over five in the postseason. They need him to pitch like an ace. Brandon Fott's been really, really good in two starts, but he's been, again, gave him five and two-thirds in game three, but they didn't let him go longer. Uh, was really good in game seven, but again, it was only four and two-thirds. He's not a guy they're comfortable pushing into the sixth and the seventh. If they can just get a little more length from their starters and avoid some of the, the middle of the bullpen that hasn't been great. You know, Andrew Salfrank has not been great and keep it. Hey, if Gallant can give them seven and they can get the game to Ginkle and Seawald. I mean, the way those two have been pitching, the game would be almost over. And, and I think that's going to be really, really interesting to see as well. They've been used a lot, but um, Ginkle and Seawald have been great. And, and then on the Rangers side of things, I think kind of the opposite. We talk about the D backs having guys who are, not considered stars playing like stars um, getting Marcus Simeon going for the Rangers is, is really, really big. He has struggled this postseason. Um, he's batting 192 with a 276 on base percentage and a 231 slugging percentage. This is one of the better players in baseball. We, you know, we've seen Corey Seager go off. We've seen Josh Young hit some big home runs. We saw Dolis Garcia go absolutely bananas in the NLCS. He's having a Randy or Rosarena type postseason. If they can get Marcus Simeon going, I mean, this offense is going to be tough for anyone to hold down. So those are some other things that I'm looking at. I actually do have a question for you, Jeff. So Adolis Garcia, as we've talked about, has been absolutely on fire this postseason. He has seven home runs, 16 RBIs, just won the ALCS MVP award, and showed an edge that uh, certainly lit a fire under his team in a lot of ways. He also does have 16 strikeouts and zero walks in the playoffs. He is a guy who will swing and miss. There is a lot of boomer bust with Adolis Garcia. You're not going to get him on base through walking very much. It's He's going to swing. Do you throw him a strike in this series? Um, I don't think if you don't have to, right? Um, and I would honestly intentionally walk him. Um 
because he's the kind of guy that hits pitches outside of the zone really well because he's so aggressive. So I'm not even sure like if pitching around him in the sense of like pitching the outer half of the plate or, or just outside, you know, hoping to elicit chases because of his bad approach. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it necessarily is something that you can pitch around. Um, Cause certainly if, the Astros could have done it. I am sure that the Astros would have done it. Um, but the way he's so hot, I was shocked that no one just people could just kept pitching to him. Because one of the one of the things with his profile is that when he's real locked in, he's just seeing beach balls and he's hitting pitches that you're not supposed to be able to hit. Um, so you either have to pitch around him or you have to pitch to him and hope that he goes cold. And he's the kind of hitter that could also go extremely cold for the first four games of the series and go 0 for 17 or one for 18. And it wouldn't be a huge shock either. Right. I mean, that's what the profile is. I mean, I, I think the way I approach this, and again, you, you never want to play scared. It, the the second you start playing scared on um, the second, you, you set yourself up for failure, especially in the postseason. But I, I think you certainly started out very, very, very carefully. Um, you know, game one, Zach Gallon will be on the mound. We saw Zach Gallon serve up some uh, home runs on, on fastballs right down the middle, out the gate against Philadelphia. As I mentioned, he has not pitched particularly great this postseason. I think maybe you challenge Garcia a little bit once or twice the first two at-bats just to get a feel for how he swing the bat. And if he remains as locked in as he appeared throughout the ALCS, I, I don't see how you pitch to him. Um, you know, you talk about guys who who can not just hit home runs, but hit the kind of home runs that just demoralize you as a team and as a pitcher. I I just wouldn't mess with it. As as good as this Rangers lineup is, there, there's no weak spots in this lineup. But if you don't have to pitch to a guy who's swinging the bat like Adolis Garcia is, if if you can avoid it and he's playing like he has been that's only going to help your chances to win. So again, I wouldn't go in automatically saying we're not going to give him anything to hit. We're, we're going to pitch it so carefully that even he can't really go outside the zone and do damage. Go up there, pitch like you know, see how he's swinging the bat and, and make an adjustment because if he's continuing to hit like he has been, I just wouldn't even mess with it. Yeah. I mean, I think you probably just need to set up a way and just, throw him soft stuff over and over again. Right. And see how that goes and hope that Gabriel Moreno is uh, <laughs> capable of blocking anything that might bounce around or be in the dirt. Um, that's really your only approach, right? Um, you can't throw this guy a fastball and you can't throw him a fastball over the plate, frankly, right now, it just seems like he's going to hit it. Even if it's like two inches above the zone, <laughs> he's going to go out, go up and get it. And, and more than happy to elevate in those high pitches too. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the approach is just, you, you set up a way and you just, you, you pitch in with nothing but spin or changeups, you know, off the plate. Wholeheartedly agree. All right, Jeff. So here it is. Moment of truth. Who are you picking to win the 2023 world series between the Rangers and the Diamondbacks? Um, I'm just going to ride with the full, uh, Diamondbacks team of destiny at this point. I, I tried to make sensible, reasonable pitch throughout the rounds. I think I probably went like, I don't even know, but 
certainly above below 500 in terms of my, my picking these series winners. So I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to go with the Diamondbacks. I, I like the way that they're playing right now. Uh, they're a fun team. You know, I think that uh, despite the young core that we mentioned, um, they have some veteran presence as well. You know, Evan Longoria there. I'd like to see Longoria get it, get a ring. Uh, Tommy Pham, who the divisive player, but I think I've said this before, one of my favorite baseball personalities. I think baseball is just more fun when Tommy Pham is there. Uh, seeing Tommy Pham get a ring would also be kind of a blast. Um, and then just, you know, Tori Lavulo and, and, and that whole organization and, you know, everything that, 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 uh, um, you know, the, the GM Mike Hazen had gone through over the last couple of years. Uh, I think it would be pretty special to see them win. So I'm rooting for him and uh, let's get the, let's get the Diamondbacks fans out there. I'm, I'm sad because this, this Sunday would have been the day uh, had I done AFL this year where I would have been flying out to Arizona. And I got to tell you, Kyle, if I was in Arizona and there were world series games going on, I absolutely would have missed whatever AFL game was going on to go and watch, see a, a world series game in person. Cause I have never been to a world series game in person. Unlike yourself, who's been to many. Uh, yeah, they certainly are fun. I will be out there covering the World Series for us at BA. Um, I will not be at games one and two in Texas. However, I will be covering games three through five in Arizona. And then if it goes game six and seven in Texas, I will be there as well. Be covering our sixth world, my sixth World Series for us here at BA. And uh, it should be a good one. You didn't give me how many games, Jeff. Who you got? How many games, D-backs? Oh, seven. I want all baseball series to go seven games. More baseball is good. Everyone can be quiet. I don't care if it was a 30-team playoff. Give me playoffs. Give me seven-game series. <laughs> you know, I picked the Rangers to reach the World Series at the start of the postseason. They were my pick before the season to be the surprise team. I've ridden with them the whole way. I'm, I'm not going to jump off now. And again, it's not about the D-backs and lack of belief in them as much as it is just my belief in the Rangers, the talent they have, having Bruce Bochy at the helm. Uh, the resilience they've shown. I, I just think this is a really, really, really exceptionally talented team that's playing really, really good baseball right now. I'm going to pick Rangers, and I'm going to say in five. Um, it does need to be noted, I have successfully picked the Rangers at every stop throughout this postseason. I have also picked against the Diamondbacks every round of this postseason, and they're here too. So, you know, won some and lost some, that's for sure. Uh, but I'm going to go Rangers in five. I think the big, big, big difference is just going to be, you know, what this lineup can do um, and just how much firepower they have. If Zach Gallon was pitching better, I'd feel a little better about the D-backs chances. Um, if their bullpen hadn't been so used in the NLCS, I, I would also probably feel a tick better as well. I just think this Rangers lineup is so ferocious and so fearsome and, it's hard to hold them down, even if you have a team of aces and a great bullpen. Um, I just think they're they're going to go do what they do best and lead the Texas Rangers to the first World Series championship in franchise history, uh, which certainly be a, a great feat for a team that, as we mentioned, only two years ago lost 102 games, had the lowest OPS in the majors, and didn't have much starting pitching present or future. Uh, no matter what happens, it's going to be a great turnaround story. It already is a great turnaround story for both these teams, and uh, they've shown that it doesn't need to be a five-year uh, wait of nothing but pain to be good again. You can turn it around with good drafting, some smart trades, and, yes, spending money. It, it makes a big difference. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me to break down the 2023 World Series. 
I know I'm looking forward to it. You are too, and uh, should be a fun one. Absolutely. Let's uh, get to baseball again. All right, everyone. That'll do it for this edition of the Baseball America Podcast 2023 World Series Preview Edition. If you've enjoyed listening, please go ahead, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Jeff Ponce, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the Fall Classic.